Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each Sunday, you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew titled, Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy. That whole thing. So anyway, yeah, and you got your notes and all that. So we're... uh... But just to sort of recap from last week, how many of you, remember we talked a little bit about painter pointer? How many of you observed this week, this past week, uh, which one you, t- you tend to be and then the fact that the other person in your life isn't? So how many of you, oh, did you notice that? I've got a painter story to just kind of make us feel a little bit better. Oh, good. I need, we need to feel better. We do. Okay. Well, at the end of the school year, the, the kids write down their top 10 things from fourth grade. Okay. And almost every student said, we like our teacher's stories. So there. <laughs> that was a top 10. And who is their, who's their teacher? Well, <laughs> so one of the advantages for a painter person is that if you want to kill time and not do anything, you can really actually fill the time with painting. You actually can. Anybody else have a have a, a, a recollection from what we had talked about on the painter pointer thing? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah, Phil? Well, I, I found out that I'm more of a painter when I'm telling a story, but I'm a pointer when I'm listening to <laughs> That is, you know, I think that's really great. And I found the same thing is true for me because I, I do kind of that flipping too. So when I'm in pointer mo- uh, mode, I'm rather impatient with whatever the painter is that I'm talking to or they're talking to me. And, and, and I found myself kind of wanting to like, like, can we like hurry up and get to the end here? And then instinctively, I start to back away to sort of escape from that person who's doing the painting and, and what they do is follow me. And so then (laughs) we have like this parade that's going on and it's really this weird thing. So, uh, anyway, that's kind of a fun way to think about uh, your communication style and how you can really mess somebody up if you're one thing and then you flip the other one on them. Yeah, Janet, did you? I'll remember that. You'll remember. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, very good. Well, uh, in addition to that, we also talked about uh, the idea that selfish pride can cause you to resent and retaliate when others hurt you with their words or their deeds. There's something about when, when other people do hurtful things to you in the form of words or deeds, that doesn't really necessarily bring out the best in us in that moment. And part of it is kind of that survival stuff that we have inside of us, the fight, flight, fix sort of, sort of uh, instincts or, or reactivity. But what happens is, is that we can become very prideful then in that moment. That in that moment, it's all about me and it's not about you. And if it's all about me and not about you, well, it sure isn't about God either, right? And so there's something about, uh, for example, the, uh, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what they are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the best one, self-control is the best one, right? Yeah. 
What, those don't have much of a chance when somebody hurts you. Was that me? Did I do that? Let's see if I could do it again, huh? Yeah, have you noticed though that when somebody hurts your feelings, it's really tough, really a challenge. It, it's almost like it takes literally the power of God to show up at that moment and fill you in order to have that or feel a sense of that, that love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Okay? So that's the challenge of that. The second part is that resentment and retaliation escalate a spirit of fear within the human heart, and that's why this reaction to being hurt can never bring inner peace. See, one of the things that we sometimes think is, is that if somebody gouges you in some way, well, then you feel like you're down here. And so that the thought is, I got to make it even, you know, I'm down here and this guy's here and he hurt me and did that to me. So I'm going to make it even. The problem is if I use retaliation or resentment to do that, I will not make it even. I will make it what? More. Well, now, now look where I am. Oh, great. I feel better. But where's the other guy? Down here. So now what's he going to do to make it even? Resentment and retaliation. See, that's why it can never bring inner peace. It, we always think it will. We think, oh, I will feel better. I will feel like everything's okay now. Or everything's equal. No, it's not. And that's what that spirit of fear does inside of us. That's why Jesus talks about this idea that, that resentment and retaliation, if you want to think in terms of the idea that, that God has a hand in it, then God is the one who gets to make things even. And God will do it in the way that God does it. And he does it way better than we do. The hard thing is letting God do what God does and not try to take over, and I'm going to do what God does. So reminding yourself of God's promise that you are his beloved and baptized child of God can redirect your reactions from self-serving to God-glorifying responses. Now, what is it going to take to do that? If somebody hurts you, if somebody offends you, if somebody takes advantage of you, if somebody, you know, creams you in some way, all right? If you think that whatever you have, whatever thought you have, the moment after it happens is not going to be your best thought, so that's where you have to probably give a little space and time between whatever it is that has happened so that you can take your mind and your thoughts back to how God feels about you, what, what God has done for you. See, that what God calls you is his beloved. What God calls you is, is uh, that you belong to him. And the touchstone that we have for that is baptism. See, that's why baptism is such a critical thing. That's why the idea of reminding ourselves daily of our baptisms. How many of you, I know I've asked this before, I'm hoping there's some improvement now in the group from the time that I first asked you, is how many of you know your baptism date? Oh, good, we have two more people than before. That's excellent, okay? <laughs> how many of you could dig out your baptismal certificate if you needed to do that? Do it. Now, some of them are pretty cool looking. I say do it and get it framed. Get it framed. And then stick it someplace on your wall or someplace where you will see it frequently. And every time you see that, what happens is the reminder is there that that's the moment when Jesus said, you belong to me. You're my beloved. 
And I think that, frankly, kind of in the wacky world that we live in today, we need reminders of that over and over again. We need to be reminding each other. We need to, of course, but, but something like that, that tangible, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah, I know, but it's a tangible touchstone. And it's the, it's the thing that says that was the moment when the water hit your, uh, hit your forehead. Do people talk to you about your baptisms? Like how much you cried and, you know, <laughs> yelled and screamed. Yeah. Do what? They couldn't what? They couldn't get my bond and do over. They couldn't get it untied. So what did they do? Pull it back and choke you then? Is that what they did? Yes. And so now you have stark memories of your baptism, don't you, Janet? Yes. There was, uh, well, the old nature was dying and then the new water was bringing new life, and you could breathe again. That was pretty amazing. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on, I think. All right. Okay, so let's get into the next part of Matthew 5. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, it's interesting here that Prior to this, when Jesus would say, uh, you have heard that it was said, and then I tell you, okay, that's been kind of the, the, uh, the pattern here of, of how he's doing this teaching, okay? Here, he's going after common sense. He's not necessarily going after some, some, some teaching of the Pharisees or the rabbis, because in fact, the rabbis often taught the very thing that Jesus is, is telling them. But what so often happens is that we sort of take a pragmatic or a common sense approach to our relationships in, uh, in God's kingdom. And then what turns out to be in our minds, oh, that makes perfect sense to do that, turns out to be the very thing that Jesus wants us to do something different. So he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That would make perfect sense. Now Jesus turns everything upside down. He says, but in the kingdom of God and among people that attach, have, uh, who, whom I've attached myself to, he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So what, what would be some ways that somebody could persecute you? Nobody gets persecuted in this room? I mean, you persecute me when you ask questions I can't answer. I mean, that's <laughs> not really. Yeah, Phil? Oh, I'm sorry. You were, I, I yeah. Now, Phil? I was you are? Okay, so just remember the rule in this group is like an auction. If you move your hand, I'm calling on you, okay? <laughs> All right, it's like that, yeah. Glenn. People start rumors and there's no truth to them. Yeah, okay, that's a good example, yeah. When somebody has it in for you in some way or they're jealous of you or maybe they're just, you know, whatever that is their reason, but they'll start some innuendo or some rumor about you 
And then they just sort of tell it to the right person, and then that person, it's like a forest fire after that, okay? And social media today is rife with that. Yeah, absolutely, okay? Other ways that persecution occurs. Bullying is a big one, yeah, and it doesn't just happen in schools or in the workplace. It can happen in churches too, all right? So you get sort of that sort of dominant person that insists on his or her way and then will use any sort of means to get to make that happen, even if it turns out that uh, it is in fact a bullying uh, situation. Okay, what else? Persecution. Yeah, Richard. People repeat lies. Okay, so when somebody knows that something is a lie, and particularly if it's about you or maybe somebody else, um, and you know it's a lie, but it's just easier to go along with the group, right? And so then you repeat the lie or you perpetuate the lie in, in, uh, in some way. Yeah. Oh, Phil, now are you raising your hand or are you yawning? I'm not sure which one it is. Okay, yeah. Um, so what, what I think whenever, whenever I'm reading this is, I'm, for me personally, is to be uh, more empathetic with whoever is per- persecuting me. Yeah. Either they're persecuting me personally or or uh, just my faith in general. Yes. Um, I, I, I try to understand their point of view, where they're coming from. If they're attacking me personally, maybe they have something going on in their life mm-hmm. uh, that's just causing them to lash out. Phil, you are a very wonderful person here today. That's so awesome. In your early life, did you have an influential pastor that helped you with, <laughs> with these things that really like, made the whole difference in your life to where you've turned out this way? I think so too, Phil. I think that's a definite, uh, definite idea there. All right. So he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So why? So that what? You may be what? Children of your father in heaven. Now, remember we talked uh, last week about one of the reasons why Jesus was, uh, reason why the, the rule in Leviticus about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth had been put in place is because of the tendency that people of that day and age had toward uh, tribal vengeance. Remember we talked about that? That in a tribal uh, society, it's much like gangs today, or it's much like um, feuds that go on between families for years and years and years, where the idea is that if you hurt one person in another tribe or take from somebody in another tribe, then what happens is the whole tribe gets punished or the whole tribe suffers the consequences. And then that's how you get these feuds that go on for years and years and years. That was the way things were in Old Testament days. And there was still that thinking that that went on even in Jesus's day. So that's why eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was put in place was to keep that from happening. All right. It was intended for that. But what started to happen was people were taking a legal uh, concept or construct of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which judges uses, use to determine uh, consequences or, or fines or things like that. Um, they were taking that into their personal relationships, and now they were using that as a way, oh, now I have bib- a biblical grounds for if you, if you slap me, I can slap you back. If you take something from me, I can take something from you. Well, one of the interesting things about that, when you look at this reading here, is that when he says that you may be children of your father in heaven, it's as if he is saying you have a new tribe. And because you have a new tribe, you have a new family, 
the rules in this family are different. The way we act with each other, the way that we conduct ourselves with each other, the way that we function together is different from those tribes that are out there in society where it's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And the way it's different is, is that when somebody sticks it to you, you don't stick it to them back other than that you do what? You love them and you what? You pray for them. How could anybody love somebody that sticks it to them? It's not humanly possible. Maybe for this much. But over a sustainable period, not possible. But you see, that's where God's grace and power comes in. You pour a little grace on that situation, you can do it. You might be gritting your teeth, right? But you can do it. Now, if someone sticks it to you and you're praying for them, what are you praying for? Sure, yes, okay, okay, now you know I can love them and that sort of thing, all right, I'll love them, but what are you tempted to pray for? Let me ask it that way first. What are you hoping, sort of secretly, as you pray for them, what do you, what, what, what's going through your mind? Destruction. Well, yes, Lord, Oh, holy Lord, God of the loving, please teach that other person what he needs to learn from this situation, right? Yeah, isn't that what we do? So when he says, pray for those that persecute you, you are praying for their betterment. You're praying for God to bless them. You're praying for God to touch their lives. And you're praying for your own getting out of the way of God doing that. And to some degree, I think it's praying for an increase in our faith, right? That would enable us to stay in that sweet place rather than going over to the dark side, which is, of course, what we would love to do. So to help remind us of that, Jesus says, God, this is the Father in heaven, does what? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The point there is, is that God does not show favoritism in terms of who he showers his blessings on. He does not restrict his generosity to only those that are in his favorite circle. Now, is that good news or are you kind of disappointed about that? Well, honestly, yeah, March. But if they didn't, if they didn't work that way, then God is not all powerful. Because it's all powerful, uh, then yeah, it, it's His grace that covers it all. It does, but isn't it kind of annoying sometimes that all the good spiritual stuff you do doesn't score more points? than all the stuff that the other people do and they aren't scoring those spiritual points? I mean, doesn't that, frankly, kind of annoy you a little bit? No, it catches no. up later. Boy, you guys are way holier than I am, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, you really are. I mean, not, and I'm not kind of m- making fun of that. I'm just simply saying 
that I think, humanly speaking, there are those moments when we love it, when somebody gets what's coming to them, right? And we feel so self-righteous in that moment. I mean, okay, so I'm driving to church this morning. (laughs) And I know I should have been going 70. I know. I know, on George Bush, but I set my cruise control for 73 because I know that's the window or I'm trusting that it is, right? Okay. And then on the other side of the freeway, kind of up there where, you know, 35 meets and Sandy Lake in that area. Okay. There was uh, some flashing lights and there was a uh, cruiser behind another car and the little uh, Texas emblem was on the black and white, so you know that's going to be like six times more on the fine. And I have to admit, as I drove by, I felt pretty self-righteous. <laughs> because why? I thought, man, that guy must have really been going fast for him to be caught. And uh, how glad I was that wasn't me, even though technically I was also what? speeding. Now, you cannot tell me that there's no one else in this room that has ever felt that. <laughs> we can be honest about those things, all right? And that's where, that's where we get a little bit indignant about God. We say, well, God, you know, it ought to count because look at what I'm doing. Look how, look how, look how I'm spending my Sunday. Look, I'm doing the right thing. In the Psalms, David lamented about this all the time. Why is it, Lord, that the wicked prosper? And those of us that are these spiritual people, oh, it's like every day we're having to drag ourselves through the day. Now, David had his moments, right? He did. But that's one of the laments that often shows up in the scriptures. And sometimes I think we get a little bit uppity with God, suggesting that somehow we ought to be in a different category. By virtue of the fact that we belong to the family of God, we must be his favorites, right? And if you're his favorite, then that must mean that there are some things that you ought to be able to benefit from in your life that other people wouldn't, particularly the people that aren't his favorites. And if you've ever been the favorite in a family, you know exactly what it is I'm talking about, okay? Yeah. I guess we ought to take a, a strong look at what uh, Scripture says about the fact that we're, we're God. God uh, really pray or, um, is thankful. Uh-huh. He says, uh, you know, the, the heaven, heaven does, does not reach out. He doesn't say, the heaven doesn't reach out and say, oh, this is wonderful. The guys, make, the guys just made the, you know, $12 million. Yeah. But he's, he jumps in for joy when one comes to him. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty... It's pretty meat and potatoes when it comes to yeah. comes to God. That's where the joy yeah. is. So if yeah. our work brings someone to Christ, yeah. we're all a joy. See, and the reality is, and this is probably why he puts this in here, and there's other places in the Bible where he reminds us that we are part of his family, we are children of God, we are his beloved, all those things. I mean, that's, that's a constant message. But the caution is, is that we don't think to ourselves that somehow that puts us in a different category than everybody else, right? 
and that somehow then we're at a higher status or we're at a higher echelon than the low life that are over there. And see, that was the, that was the issue that, that crept into the Pharisees' way of doing things was that they felt that, well, because we are doing the holy things, we are obeying the Sabbath. It's like the gospel reading this morning. You know, we are following the Sabbath exactly the way it's supposed to be followed. That ought to count for something. And what Jesus is reminding us here is it doesn't count for anything, but the reason why that's good news is because that's why grace was invented. See, grace was invented for people who cannot add to their own status with God because we don't have any by nature. So what does God do? He says, well, yeah, there's a problem here. You're imperfect. So I will cover your imperfection with forgiveness. I'll cover it with grace. And that will take care of it. But when you think about it, if we are all recipients of God's grace, what does that make us? people in need of it. And who needs God's grace? Sinners. And that's us. So dare we get too uppity, okay? That's why he says, if you love only those that love you, well, big deal. If you only are nice to people that are nice to you or people that are in your tribe, so what? Shoot, even the pagans do that, right? So he says... Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so cross out the word perfect. We're going to change the Bible here. Not really. Okay, the word perfect in the Greek is the word teleos, which means complete. Complete. And that's a better word here. When he says perfect, that oh, we always think of moral perfection. Oh, I have to be perfect. Oh, I can never make any mistakes. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the idea that as love is the thing that guides us because God loves us, then we complete the, the, the circle. God, God gives his love to us in, the, in the extending his grace to us, and we do what? We complete the circle or we complete the flow by extending the grace we've received to what? To other people. See? It, it's, not, it's, it's not his intent that he gives it to us and it stops with us. If it stops with us, that stops the flow. It's all about the flow. So if the flow goes from him to me, it's got to go from me to somebody else and back to him. And so you think of the like uh, Omega here, uh, figure eight. I think that's a good image for that. Yeah, Clint. Well, the ultimate example of the perfection doesn't really register that highly fact that Jesus, God even lets Jesus yeah. suffer. Yeah. And he was. And he was perfect. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but again, it's sometimes I think that what we end up doing is in our thinking, the more perfect I am or the way, the better I am, whatever that is behaviorally, then that should count for something. And probably in society it does. I, I would say any of you that have ever taught a classroom full of kids, and maybe even in fourth grade, okay, probably could probably say there are some kids that are easier to teach than others, right? There are some kids, any parent will say, there are some kids that are easier to parent than others, right? That's just kind of a, that would make perfect sense, right? That, 
that the easier one, maybe that's the more compliant one. Maybe that's the one that follows the rules. Maybe that's the one that all you have to do is give them a look and they like do like this. Oh, did any of you grow up with a look, by the way? Anybody grow up with a look? Yeah, it, you know, we all know the look, but nobody can describe what the look looks like, right? <laughs> but we all know that look. We sure do. Every once in a while, I wonder to myself, a little secret here. So I'm up front in church, you know, kind of in the area where I sit, you know, up there by the lectern. And I just like to look around on Sunday morning. I just do. I'm kind of visual and I like to see, look at people and see who's here and who's not sitting in the right pew, you know, <laughs> and then think, oh boy. Uh, and, and so sometimes what happens is I'm not really thinking about anything, but I'm just looking around, but there must be a certain look on my face <laughs> because what I notice when I look at somebody is all of a sudden they'll, they'll do like this. <laughs> now, there's some people that are totally impervious to that and they don't do it at all, but I've just noticed that. And when that happens, I'm thinking, I must have given them the look and I didn't even know that I gave them the look in the moment that I gave them the look. So now you know if I'm looking at you, I'm not thinking of you, all right? I'm not doing anything. But it's really amazing how that, that moment is almost like embedded in our cells or something because we just kind of go like this. We straighten up just instantly like that. Yeah. Oh, they, were, they could have been dozing. Now, sometimes it's guilt. Yeah, like they look up from their cell phone and they see me looking at them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. See, so... Sometimes that guilt is earned, and then you ought to be doing this, right? But uh, most of the time it isn't. So notice what uh, uh, the, a parable that Jesus told about this idea that, uh, that sometimes we are envious of the fact that God is generous to those people that haven't earned it, that haven't worked as hard as we have, that haven't been in the trenches like we have that weren't there when this all started and have borne the heat of the day, so to speak. Jesus told that parable. He told a parable that, remember the vineyard workers? The guy has the vineyard and he goes out different times of the day and he hires people to work and he, he says, I'll pay you the day's wage for it. Well, at the end of the day, he hires guys that work for just an hour and then they get paid the same as everybody else. And then the, the guys that work the whole day, they're, they're whining about the fact that here you're paying them as much as you're paying us, and here we work the whole day. And so then the, the guy says at the end in, in verse 15, or are you envious because I'm generous? And the answer is yes. Yeah, we are. That's how by nature we are. Yeah, Victoria. The thing that applies to that parable and also I think applies here is the fact that the people that didn't work all day long, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. You who were working knew where your next meal was coming from. You had the confidence, you had the peace, you knew where um, the support was coming for your family. So by putting it in this situation, we also have um, where we know where our grace comes from. We know where our love comes from. We know and we have the confidence that we are beloved. The other people, on the other hand, are starving for that. Yeah. Why wouldn't we want them to have that? Yeah. And so the impetus there is on doing the work without expecting 
that there's going to be a change in your status with God. And so that's the, see that the sinful nature inside says, yeah, 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 that's all great. The grace is wonderful, but it ought to count for something. And that's frankly the world we live in. And I think the influence of the world that we live in oftentimes then affects how we think. All right. So uh, to sort of wrap that all together, sort of tie it together, Paul says some, uh, some similar things then in Romans 12. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. This is in verse 14 and then 20 and 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how, what is he suggesting is the way that you would overcome evil with good to somebody who stuck it to you? Kill them with kindness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we don't like that word kill so much, but, <laughs> but, but, all right. So what would be an example of, I'm not going to use the word kill. I'm sorry, John. Um, if, you're hung, if your enemy is hungry, feed him and thirsty, give him something to drink. Okay, what, what's a way to do that? Just, I'm not going to say what's the way that you all have done that. I'm not going to be presumptuous here, but what's the way to do that? What, what, what's a way to, to feed that person or to give that person something to drink, given the fact that that person stuck it to you? What's a way to do that? Yeah, Mary Jo. One thing I think Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, okay, so that sort of raises the, the, a question, though. What about situations where somebody is abusive? What, is there a way to um, show kindness? Okay. Obviously, you could pray for that person. You can even do that from a distance. But what about, what about a situation where there is abuse, like in a marriage or in a family or something like that, where... Uh, it's not going to be, it's going to be harmful for you or maybe for your loved ones to be, to stay near that person. Can you still, um, honor this even in that kind of situation? Can you do that? Are there other ways? Can you feed someone from a distance? Yeah, you can give to something that would in turn give, right? Okay. So we're not talking about situations here where it's not safe to be with that person. Okay, that's a little bit different. That's a little bit different situation. But this is your walk in kind of that normal sort of everyday life that we have with people that may hurt us or, or, or harm us in that way. So if you look at, at beloved life principle number 26, okay? Praying for those who abuse you deepens your gratitude for Jesus who prays the same prayer for you. Now, see, this is the hard thing for us sometimes. We forget that when we sin against each other, we're also sinning against whom? Against God. And God doesn't like sin. 
he forgives it, of course. But but sometimes we think that, oh, there are, but there are categories of sin and some of which is easier to forgive for God than others. The little things that I do compared to the big things the other guy does. How does God look at sin? All the same. Yeah. Now, to be sure, in society and in relationships and in our world, there are levels of sin, right? Uh, you know, the guy that was speeding today, okay, he did, he's not going to go to jail for that, likely. But if there was a warrant out for his arrest, he is. I mean, so see, there's, there, you know, there, of course there are. But God doesn't, does not look at it that way, all right? So you may have to protect yourself and your family from their physical and emotional abuse, but praying for God to bless them, to bless them, creates a spiritual hedge around your heart. Now, you want to do something that probably will take the power of God's grace in your life to do. That's what you do. You're praying that God will bless that person. But don't use me to do it. <laughs> Just throw that out as impossible. Coming from the fourth grade teacher who just got this great review, right? Yeah, but, but that's kind of, isn't that how we think? Yeah. yeah, God, send a missionary to that person, <laughs> right? Someone from India to come over and share the gospel with this person because this person really needs it, but send me to India, right? Uh, yeah, okay, so yeah, no, uh, it, it, could it be, could it be? that God would use your lack of retaliation and your lack of resentment toward that person to make it better for that person. Do I need to ask that again? No, it it hits, doesn't it? See, God can use anything. And sometimes his best tool is you doing nothing but you're praying that God will bless that person. Yikes. Some things take the grace of God and his power to make it happen. Have any of you actually seen that change occur in somebody? I'm not going to ask you to share it. I just want to know if you've ever seen it. Okay, so it's likely that God is still working on that situation. And part of the deal sometimes, I think, is that we want that situation to hurry up and get better. So let's just sort of help God along a little bit here, right? And sometimes we have to let, just step back and kind of let whatever seeds are that have already been planted, we have to let them germinate and we have to let them sort of happen. And then later we'll see the fruit. Yeah. Um, this isn't a personal thing, but I've heard about when Samaritans first set, set up that field hospital, I think it was outside of Mosul, yeah. to help Christians that were being persecuted or yeah. whatever. They ended up treating a lot of Muslims yeah. who afterwards said that changed so much their opinion That's right. of Americans and, and Christians. The West in general. They were yes. treated just like yeah. What's kind of interesting about some of those stories is that when some of those folks, uh, the Muslims, 
uh, immigrate or they are refugees and they go across to, let's say, to Europe someplace. Um, I've read about this, that in Germany, that some of the Christian and would be mostly Lutheran for the most part, um, pastors are finding those people seeking them out and taking classes to become uh, Christian. So it, to some degree, you have something that happened like a thousand miles away somewhere else that if your enemy is hungry, thirsty, that sort of thing, that being treated in, in, a, uh, in a special way, and then they take that experience with them across the Mediterranean and end up in Europe and here the God's kingdom grows as a result of that. So th that, th that's the beauty of this is that Sometimes we're a little uh, harsh with ourselves thinking either I got to do more or I have to do something that will make a difference. And the reality is that you probably already did. Let God then do what God's going to do. And in the meantime, you pray for that person. You pray for that person and you pray for that situation. And sometimes it changes right before our eyes and we go, holy cow, it could only be by the, God, by the grace of God that that would happen, and I can't even believe it. Other times, the change that occurs is not noticed by you because you're still hurt. But the change is noticed by other people. And they go, I don't know what happened, but man, there's something happened, and it's amazing. And because you're still in a hurt place, it's hard to see that. So kind of an interesting little dynamic there. Okay, let's go on to Matthew 6, then 1 to 4. So now he get, he's going to get into this whole thing of what it means to have a pious life. Piety is not a word that we often use that much in our like way of talking and way of thinking. So if you want to think of piety or pious life as the way in which your Christian life the, uh, the difference that that is uh, visibly from maybe uh, people that would say would be not believers. Let's think of it that way. Okay. So he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. That's the idea of your piety, right? In front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. All right. So we s stop with that. All right. So he says, to practice your righteousness. Now for, for a Jewish person, the three pillars of that in, in a practical way was giving alms to the poor, was engaging in ritual prayer, and then also doing fasting at the prescribed times in the, in the Jewish calendar. All right, does that make sense? So we have, we have giving, giving offerings for the poor, that was almsgiving, praying in the way that was prescribed for them uh, by, the, uh, by their liturgies and then, and then fasting. So what is it that Jesus is cautioning? Is he cautioning that you do it? Or is he cautioning the motive behind your doing of the doing it? Right? Yeah, that's what he's going after, right? So he's saying, be careful that, that, you, that you're not doing it for the wrong reason. And in this case, the reason is to be seen by others. Now, one of the things we probably need to get a little sense of is that how would anybody know? Well, because of the way that praying and almsgiving and, uh, and fasting was exercised, the way that it was practiced in the Jewish religion, everybody knew. 
So the first thing was you're, you're in this community, right? And pre- predictably, some of the communities would be small. Anybody grow up in a small town or ever lived in one? So there's a lot of closeness and there's a lot of uh, the sense of people watching you. There's scrutiny, of course, and people knowing stuff about you, right? Okay, that's kind of how that is. And so oftentimes in a community, the way that somebody would exercise these three would be out in the open where others would in fact see it, all right? So the first one was almsgiving. So the way that that was done was at the temple or at the synagogue, people would go and they would give these offerings to the priest. That would be seen by others around. This was not like it is today where you can go online and do your giving and nobody will know except for the financial secretary and your banker, right? They didn't have it in those days. We have it today. So the idea is that they would do it and this activity would be seen by others. There's an account in the Bible of that very thing happening. Jesus in the temple and the widow's might. Do you remember that whole story? Okay. See, this would have happened in the, in the context of that area of the temple. And the idea was, was that they had this metal uh, container into which the uh, offerings would go. And so Jesus sort of is watching this from the shadows and he's seeing what he's seeing that a lot of the people came in who had lots of money and they would either dump the money in or they would have it in a bag and they would drop it in there. And what would happen if you drop metal into a metal container? (laughs) Makes lots of noise, right? And so the sort of the sense of it was, was that if you were watching that, you might even conclude, wow, that's really a holy person. Look what that person is doing in in the form of a gift. And so then what happens after that? A widow comes in and she drops a widow's mite in. Have you ever seen the mite? I had a friend that went over to Israel and, uh, and he brought back a little gift for me, and it's in a little wooden box about this big. And, and you open it up, and it's literally the mite that the widow gave. Let me tell you <laughs> how he was able to get that one mite. Holy cow. So I put it in a safety deposit box, and I'm going to hold on to it as an investment. Uh, no, actually what it is is a little piece of copper that is paper thin, and it's smaller than a dime. It's, feath- it's so, you, it, you, it doesn't even register that it weighs anything. And so you can imagine that what would have happened when she dropped that piece of metal into this uh, metal container, it probably didn't even make a ding. It probably did, it's probably went, like that, probably was all it did, right? And yet then what does Jesus say about that? She gave all she had that that everybody else gave like out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and Jesus turns that whole thing uh, upside down. So it's just this idea that he's saying to us is that when we're doing holy things, when we're doing Christian things, when we're doing things that are good things, see, these are all good things giving to the poor and praying and fasting and, and going to church and, and, and being a good person and doing all that stuff is all good. There's no evil in it, right? Yeah. But we can easily get trapped into doing it for the wrong reason. And sometimes I think we fall into the trap rather than 
that it is our intent to go into the trap. So it's like when you do nice things for people or for God, other people notice and how do they treat you? If, you, if you're doing like good things in the church and other people see that and they know, and they know it's you, how do the people treat you? Good. You're our friend. Oh, so thank you so much. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a fact, it's a good thing to thank people for stuff, right? But you can see where the trap could be, don't you? Because it could, it can just ever so slightly shift into, I, I really kind of am enjoying the fact that you're noticing what I'm doing. And I like that so much. I think I'll do more. But rather than do it anonymously or secretly, I think I'll wait until there's a bunch of people at the church and then they'll notice me doing it. See how easy it is to go there, right? And so he's just simply saying, watch out for that. See, because that can easily trip us up. All right. So beloved life principle number 27 is that eventually what others think of you, think, T-H-I-N-K, can, doesn't always, but it can become more important than what God thinks of you as his beloved. See, at the end of the day, why do we do what we do? Because we're his beloved. And that's what beloved do. And what beloved do is they live their lives in response to God's loving them. That's why we do what we do. But what can uh, corrupt that a little bit, I think sometimes, is that we like the fact that God calls us his beloved, but we really like it when people call us good, right? And that's when it gets easy to get tripped up there. Okay, so he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the, in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, what is assumed here? What's assumed is that you're going to do it. You're going to give. See, notice he doesn't say if. He doesn't say, well, if it ever happens. He says when, right? When you give. So it's assumed that as God's beloved, we're going to be generous and open-minded and open-hearted to the idea of giving to people in need. What's interesting about the, about the Jewish perspective was that this was of such significance and such importance that many of the rabbis taught that if you do this, this will earn some forgiveness of sin for you. So that's how big of a deal it was. All right. Now we would say, well, no, that God's grace is what gives you God's forgiveness. But that, that tells you a bit, a, a bit about how important that was. All right. So he says, if you're going to do this and you are, cause you're God's beloved, right? He says, do it in a way that you're not promoting yourself by what it is that you're doing. Does that make sense? That's this doing it with trumpets, all right? And he says that if the people that he, apparently there were people that were doing that, only Jesus would know their heart. You and I couldn't look in somebody's heart and say, oh, I know why you gave. You want to just make a name for yourself. See, we're tempted to do that, but we can't do that. But Jesus could. But Jesus says if the people that did that, 
they have received what? Their reward. The, the Greek word is apachain. And apachain means a payment for services rendered. So what Jesus is saying is, is if they're doing this for that reason to be honored by others, well, then that's what they got. Honored by others. But that's it. There's nothing else of spiritual value in their doing that. Okay? So then he uses this analogy of the left hand and the right hand. Right? What do you think his point is? Almost in some sense that I'm going to do this over here and the other part of my brain didn't even know it. Now, I don't know how to do that exactly, but although there have been times when I've been thought of as a half-brained person, so maybe that's, uh, maybe that's when I'm painting, I think that's what happens. But, but anyway, it's, it, but it's that idea. See, it's this, this idea that, that literally it's almost as if you're doing this without even necessarily the other part of you aware. That's how secret he wants it to be. Okay? Yeah, Michael. Pardon? Instinctive. D- distinctive? Instinctive. Instinctive. Oh, yeah. So where it's so natural to do this that you literally could do it without thinking, which for every guy in the room is our ultimate goal, right? <laughs> to be able to do things without thinking. <laughs> and now we have biblical proof that this is how it ought to be. Very good, Michael. Thank you for that. That was uh, our head elder here at the church at Messiah. Okay, thank you. Okay. Do what? You said that, not me. Oh. Well, I hope you'll come back next week to defend yourself. Yes. Okay, so, oh, yeah. Could it be heart versus head? What? Heart versus head. Oh, heart versus head. Hadn't thought about that. Heart versus head. Heart versus head. Heart says, I'm going to give you this, okay? And then my brain says, you don't have enough money. Oh, yeah. Okay, that would be a way to think about that. That there's a motive here, and then there's pragmatism here, right? And sometimes pragmatism talks me out of doing the good thing. Oh, that's a great point. That's a, I think that's a good point that he made. Not quite as good as the point that you made, but it's, it's right up there. <laughs> All right, so what? So let's keep let's keep going here. All right, so here's a here's a question that I sort of pose to you: In what ways might selfish pride and fear pose a spiritual threat to true generosity when giving to those in need? And so I just put a few down that kind of uh, will hit me from time to time, and maybe you can uh, relate to this. And I I haven't personally always experienced them. But serving in churches, sometimes this shows up, okay? So where giving is going to happen only if there's a tax deduction for the gift. I don't, was it last year? When was it that there was some noise being made in, uh, when they were thinking about tax reform and then they were sort of getting to gouge Christians a little bit in some way that we're going to limit the charitable uh, deduction that you can take for uh, when you give to charity or when you give to church or whatever it would be. And I remember whenever that, that issue or that topic came up, there was a lot of hand-wringing in the churches because there was a fear that, uh-oh, what's that going to mean? That's going to mean that people are going to give less because 
there might be less of a deduction in terms of your taxes, okay? So there's a very practical application here to this in terms of is the, is the tax benefit the motive for giving? And that's a caution for us, is it not? We enjoy the benefit. And we, I love the fact that there is a benefit. I, I, I personally like that. I need that. But, but what would happen if it was taken away or limited in some way? Would that affect my generosity? And that's where, here's where the cautions come in. All right, what about this one? Using guilt or shame to motivate people to give their fair share. Have you ever run into that before? I've seen that in, in some of the churches that either I've been a part of, not here, I'm so grateful for the fact that that's not here, but I've been in other churches where that was a sentiment that was uh, expressed in a voters meeting or some other thing where there was a frustration about the fact that the budget's up here and people are giving down here and how do you motivate people to, to give? And this idea that, uh, in fact, I heard of this a long time ago, is that people's giving was published in the uh, bulletin or in the annual report. Yeah, and that was a way then to sort of shame people into giving or guilt them into giving, all right? And typically what happens with that kind of approach is that when that's taken is that people will give one time to meet the obligation, and then you never see them ever again, and maybe not even in another church. Yeah, Carl. You know, it's interesting that God, God says, I give you so much, and all I ask is that you give back 10%. Yeah. Because it's not yours anyway. Yeah, I know. You know, so yeah. if you give back 10%, so you've got 90%. My yeah. gosh, that's a lot. Sure, sure. And yet, people have such a hard time yeah. giving. Yeah. And even in our congregation, the numbers, you know, if, if, not only in our congregation, if everybody gave 10%, the churches would have a full budget. You'd never have anything else. Yeah. You never have to worry about any of it. Sure. Yeah. And again, what we want to remember is that 10% is, uh, in the Old Testament, that was mandated. 10%, that's the tithe, thou shalt do it or else. In the New Testament, it's seen as a, and certainly we would say in the body of Christ, it's seen as certainly as something to shoot for. It's not mandated. But if you can reach that, you're going to be amazed what your life is like. But I've sort of learned, and my wife and I, we, we do tithe, but what we've learned is that we, we didn't start out that way. We started out in little bitty churches that didn't have much money, and so then we had to sort of incrementally get there. So it took us a number of years to get there. So we, I think we probably started out at maybe 3%, three and then each year we would go up a little bit. And part of it is that you're learning to live on the 90%. After Uncle Sam gets his 30%, all right? So you're, you're ha what you're learning to do is manage what you have, which is also just as important and big a, a, a part of that in terms of the idea of giving. So you can be generous in many ways, and certainly financial would be a huge thing. I'm so grateful to be in a church now where Pastor Coleman does, he does like the best job I've ever been around anybody that could teach this way better than I ever could. And he does it in such a way that focuses on thanking people ahead of time for their generosity. I, I've never been in a church where they did that before. 
And that to me, that is such a positive and gospel-centered way to, to go about doing that. And I'm, I'm very personally very grateful for that. And I hope you are too, okay? Um, the third one is demanding. The key word here is demanding. An ostentatious plaque to recognize a gift. Now, again, this is the, I know I'm probably treading on very thin ice here and, and getting real delicate here. So is there anything wrong with a plaque or something that says so-and-so gave this gift as a memorial or some special thing like we have our stained glass windows and stuff like that in our church. Anything wrong with that? No, not a thing wrong with that. But having a six-foot monument built uh, is probably just a little bit ostentatious, all right? And that's where that, uh, that delicate line is, all right? And so I will just say nothing more about that, but to say that that can be a temptation is to give for that reason, right? The reason I'm doing it is because I want my name in lights, and that's what Jesus is cautioning us against, all right? Another one is unfairly judging the motives of generous givers. See, we can become judgmental about that guy that gave that big gift. And we can say, well, yeah, I know why he did it. He just did it because he wanted to make a name for himself. Oh, yeah? Can you read somebody's heart and say that's why? No. So part of generosity is allowing others to be generous in the way that they're going to be generous and don't get all uppity about it. Okay. How about unfairly judging the motives of the people that are on the receiving end of the gift? I'm tempted to do that when I'm driving down 75 and I exit off of Royal and I stop at the stoplight and there's a guy standing there right underneath the sign that says city ordinance, no uh, panhandling or whatever it is, however it says that. And the guy's standing right there and he's seen better days. And I'm tempted at that moment to think to myself, if I give him $2, what's he going to do with it? What's he going to do with it? He's going to go spend it on something that he's addicted to. I'm tempted. I'm tempted at that moment. And in that moment, what am I doing? I'm judging. See? So there's two different ways. See, you can judge the motives of the giver, but you can also judge the motives of the recipient. And then the last one would be easiest to identify, and that's giving and expecting something in return. Generosity does not expect anything in return because generosity says, I already got, I already received from God everything that I need. And it's a gift of his grace. So he says, give in secret because your father who sees in secret will reward you. So principle number 28 the ultimate motive for giving generously is gratitude. It's gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. Because of him, you are already rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And beloved life principle number 29, we end with then, the place where your life's path crosses the path of a person in need is the place where you meet Jesus. Where do you meet Jesus? Right there. That's where you meet Jesus. Yeah, we see him here and we're filled with him here. But it's when I'm down there on that exit of Royal 
and I do whatever it is I do, that's where I meet Jesus. And that's what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you that whenever you did for one of the least of these, you did what? For me. Boy, that nails us. Let's close a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way in which your word speaks to us. It challenges us. It, it really makes us look at ourselves and think maybe that we have some growing to do, that we have some learning to do, and that the place where we get to do that learning is in everyday life. Lord, strengthen us with your word and, and fill us with that sense of gratitude for what you've already done for us, that, that, that whatever we do isn't because we look great doing it. It isn't because uh, there is some uh, a temporal reward that comes from it, that whatever we do is just a response to what you've already done for us. And that is so much in loving us, sending your son to be our savior, forgiving us and giving us a place in heaven. So I would just simply pray, Lord, that you would challenge us, each of us this week, in whatever the path is that we're on. There certainly will be opportunity to meet you along the way. And uh, what I pray is that you give us the strength and the courage that we need to be responsive in that moment, whatever that moment may call for. Watch over us, dear Lord, and keep us together and close to you until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.